Good afternoon. It's Friday the 1st of July 2022. It's now a quarter past one. I do apologise for the delay this morning, uh, this afternoon. Slight technical difficulties. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Uh, let's get straight on uh, with the Ukraine war. Yeah, let's just get a little update of uh, how this conflict is going. We're going to run through some of the important breaking stories on this. So as we all know, we're uh, well past the 100 day mark. Uh, so look at an update here. How are things looking? We'll talk about the NATO summit in a minute because that's going to definitely feed into this story. How are things looking in general? Well, uh, we're going to point to this uh, excellent piece here by Ray McGovern, veteran CIA analyst, NATO scribes versus Russian artillery and rockets. You can kind of get the gist of this story from the headline, uh, of course, here. But the question is, uh, look, look at how strident Poland is, for instance, um, and look at the rhetoric coming out of the NATO summit. We're just a defensive alliance. But yet people in different countries in Europe were saying totally different things. The U.S. is saying totally different things. Look at this. President Duda claims Russia is a threat for all of NATO uh, and that multiplying NATO's rapid reaction forces will make Europe safer. No, this is not a Polish joke. Indeed, that, that's as Ray McGovern. That is a perfect sentiment because uh, this was the the theme of the NATO conference. We uh, we stop a war in Europe by militarizing more and uh, making war more likely. Yeah, and you remember when this started? They said that NATO encircling Russia. That's a conspiracy theory. Yes. Well, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, Finland and Sweden look like they're at the moment anyway on yeah. track to join NATO. So that would sort of complete the encirclement, wouldn't it? Indeed. Uh, all you need then is Georgia uh, uh, as, as a member. So, uh, and then this is the story that's breaking, and this is interesting, little propaganda lesson here. Um, this was pushed out right at the end of the NATO meeting. Ukraine plans on a summer counteroffensive to oust Russian forces. This is absolutely a planted story. This is basically saying they're going to do a big counteroffensive in the middle of the summer. What, are, they, are they waiting for the suntans to, to be put in place? What what are they waiting for? I think they're just going to announce a date and say, you know, we're going to do a big counteroffensive on this day. And apparently when that happens, everything is going to change. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the reality is much different. Uh, Ukraine continues to get ground down. Their forces, they're losing uh, hundreds of men per day uh, in terms of casualties. That's including injured people taken off the battlefield, running around a thousand uh, a week or something like this uh, in terms of uh, casualties. So this is not good news. Uh, the numbers are piling up. Uh, the desertions are increasing, a lot going AWOL. Uh, Russia already has thousands of soldiers who've already surrendered. Um, as well. So they're full on, and the DPR is full on POWs. So again, they're, and they're announcing this counteroffensive. Right. They're losing territory, they're losing men, but don't worry, there's a counteroffensive coming sometime in July. We're not sure exactly when, but maybe they'll be able to negotiate a peace settlement at that point. What do you think? Uh, not if Liz Truss has something to say about it, as we mentioned on Wednesday. Liz Truss, we'll get to her in a minute, of yes. course. Um, but uh, then back to this piece here. So uh, this is this is a realistic assessment here. Those of realistic and compassionate bent uh, can but harbor hope that before there is only a cadaver of Ukraine left to defend, Kiev sees the handwriting on the wall and cries uncle, uh, despite what they are hearing from Uncle Sam, who seems to have a remarkable tolerance for carnage in Ukraine, mm -hmm. says uh, Ray McGovern. That's the main point, isn't it? Uh, it, it th this is something I haven't heard from NATO. There's a lot of posturing, uh, a lot of uh, muscle flexing and things like this. But it's clear that nobody in NATO wants to sacrifice even one soldier uh, for this great cause that we're told is this the greatest existential threat uh, to face the world since World War II, and they're not willing to sacrifice even one, not officially anyway. Of course, many have died right. uh, un under the Ukrainian uh, Foreign Legion banner. Many Western soldiers and fighters have died, but so but they they're quite happy to dump weapons into Ukraine uh, indefinitely. We're told indefinitely for a long war for years maybe, mm. uh, and then watch the Ukrainian armed forces shrink and shrink and shrink. Uh, to the point and watch their territory shrink and shrink and shrink. So NATO countries are not willing to make um, any military sacrifices, anything meaningful, but yet they're willing to make an economic sacrifice to destroy their own economies in Western Europe, right. namely Germany, the UK, 
the United States and so forth. And that seems like some kind of price that they're paying vicariously. I can't figure out what's going on here. Help me out, Mike. Uh, I don't know that I can. We're, we're really confused how this is going, but apparently it's going great. Uh, NATO has never been more united and Europe has never been more united. We keep hearing that. So meanwhile, this is what you need to look out for here. Political rift is Zelensky surrendering positions to his own executioners. And this is a piece by the Serbian uh, geopolitical analyst uh, Dragana uh, Tripovic. And uh, she's saying uh, a confrontation between two important figures on the political scene, uh, Vladimir Zelensky and former Interior Minister Arsen Avakov, who uh, more, has a lot of sway over the ultra-nationalist battalions, including the Azov Battalion. And he's a former Interior Minister. He's been in with multiple administrations now. That's unheard of in Ukraine. Right. So he's been there behind the scenes as a, a power broker behind the scenes. So there's apparently a rift between these two. And uh, people that I spoke to uh, from Ukraine recently have said that they believe that Zelensky's uh, days are numbered in weeks and possibly uh, uh, um, at the most a few months. Mm. So it, it apparently not looking good for Zelensky, hence the photo ops and all of the, there's a lot of PR going on. Uh, and re recently uh, we saw we talked about an extra last week, Ben Stiller, the actor went to uh, pay tribute yes. to world president Zelensky. And so who's there this week? It's none other than Mr. Virgin himself, the king of Necker Island, Richard Branson, uh, is gone in to see Zelensky. Let's take a look at that. And this is, uh, mind you, we're gonna sh what you're gonna show you is so staged. Yes. It's not yes. even funny. Like, uh, so try not to laugh too hard when you look at how staged they are and all the, the pulling the faces by Zelensky, all the poses and, and so forth. But go ahead and roll this. Happy to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, Mr. President. Nice to meet you. Mr. President, Slava Ukraini. Nice to meet you again. From Great Britain, you see, and from Europe, it's about sanctions. I you was in the capital, not out of the Kiev. And then we went out. We went out of the. Dostomil. We went seeing Kiev today and the places outside. It was destroyed. Yeah. We we've done two platforms because we are personally not know each other. Yeah. Uh, uh, the we went to Irpin, Irpin, and I think the uh, you know what, what was clear was that the the drip feeding of weapons into Ukraine. The, the we created the group together with Rasmussen, right? Uh, former secretary of NATO. Yes, as for us, and the second platform, which can you know uh, to give us something. Uh, filled in a lot of uh, gaps, I think, as to um, what what what, you're, what you need. Um, yeah, go back and see see where where, where we can help. Um, but um, so so Branson's going to help then. What's he going to be supplying? We have a few ideas here. Uh, he's going to be sending twenty jet skis uh, and maybe a private jet for other celebrities to come and take photo ops and maybe. Virgin flights from uh, Kiev maybe Airport. that's to get Zelensky out. Possibly. Uh, he's, he said he's going to have a word with Simon Cowell about doing an X Factor in Kiev, a sort of young nationalist talent search sort of thing. Uh, there's all sorts of potential there uh, with Branson. But you know what? What's interesting, Branson, he, he did a, a fundraising a concert in Venezuela when they tried to overthrow yes. Maduro, and Branson went down to back Juan Guaido. That didn't go too well, did it? No. And there's a lot of similarities between Juan Guaido and Zelensky. Zelensky yeah. But what was other interesting, they talked about uh, Bucha, Bucha. Did you yes, hear that? Yes. So what they do when the celebrities come or the U.S. dignitaries, they take them on a tour, a sort of horror tour. They drive them to Bucha to see the site of this alleged massacre, and they take them to a few bombing sites. And so that's sort of that's part of the indoctrination process right. of Western dignitaries when they go over to Kiev. It's totally set up. They have the same system. They run everybody through. It's interesting, but you don't you don't see that on the news. But we're telling you now. Uh, so. Indeed. Uh, so the question is, uh, what are the allies up to then? 
Well, the G7 and NATO back-to-back, -back, as we know, yes. this week. So I thought this is an important point to make here. This, you see a lot of grandstanding with Western leaders. And uh, this is the Washington Post admitting here in this piece, Biden, Macron, Schultz, Johnson, allies abroad struggling at home. I'm going to add Justin Trudeau to that list as well. You know, so one, two, three, four, five of the people you see don't actually have mandates at home. I mean, Boris uh, just vi missed a vote of no confidence, didn't he, uh, from his own party. With another one still in the works. Right. So he's basically a lame duck prime minister. Joe Biden's a lame duck president. Olaf Scholz is massively unpopular in Germany. He hasn't even been in office a year. And Justin Trudeau has stitched together some weird coalition to somehow stay in power with 20-something percent of the vote for his party. And Macron is hugely unpopular uh, in France. So you see a lot of this grandstanding. You see a lot of this, uh, the chest puff out, the jackets off, the showing off. These people are not popular in their own countries, but yet they're out there making decisions for the rest of the world that could determine uh, you know, the, the, the future for the next uh, few years or few decades. And let's just hope that they're not making really, really bad decisions. Well, if they're going to avoid their own lynching, they may feel that they need to get rid of a large proportion of the population in their own countries. Perhaps that's what's driving their, their thrust for war here? Something's driving their thrust, uh, but I'm not sure it's anything really uh, good and constructive. Right. Uh, but so the story of the two British POWs, we've talked about that as well. Well, it turns out the European Court of Human Rights has weighed in on this. They have, this is an interesting angle. They've said Russia must ensure that British fighters are not executed. Who are they talking about here? Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner, these are two mercenaries or supposed mercenaries, depending on how you frame that, fighting for the Ukrainian forces there against Russia. Uh, they were captured. They faced the death penalty. The problem is, and this is what the European Court of Human Rights has said, telling Russia it should ensure that the death penalty imposed on the applicants was not carried out, ensure appropriate conditions of their detention, etc., medical needs, and so forth. So here's the problem. Your, Europe is, is addressing Russia but they're not actually in Russia. They're in the Donetsk People's Republic. So Europe is not recognizing the DPR and they're trying to do this through Russia. So from a legal point of view, and by the way, Russia doesn't, uh, they, they withdrew from the European Court of Human Rights a few months ago. I, I find that the ultimate irony, bearing in mind how fast Britain is trying to withdraw from the European Court of Human Rights right at this moment. That's interesting. Yeah. So where's Brussels on this? Very confused. Like who's in charge? Or are they? Is this reality based? What's going on? This looks like a political statement yes. designed to put Russia in the corner and not recognize the DPR. And that's not going to help these two gentlemen at all. Mm. If they want to help these two gentlemen, uh, Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner, these two British uh, mercenaries or whatever you want to call them that were captured, then they need to engage directly with Donetsk. Okay, just a little diplomatic advice. Might not be uh, interesting for anybody else, but I think it would probably help a lot. But they don't want to do that. No, no. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, energy then. And uh, Joe Biden, what's he been up to? Well, he was stumbling around the, 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 the NATO summit in Madrid. Uh, and he, sometimes when Joe, Joe gets excited, he takes the mic and he starts walking around and he starts talking. And that's when Joe's really in his element when he starts doing that. That's when you know that troubles are on the way. Here's Biden talking about the war uh, and what to expect in terms of uh, inflation and energy and who's, whose fault it is. But right. to roll this. Hold on, mommy. The reason why gas prices are up is because of Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. The reason why the food crisis exists is because of Russia. Russia not allowing grain to get out of Ukraine. Well, and, and that's complete nonsense. Russia's just uh, already started exporting grain from Ukraine in the last couple of days, as we reported before. Yeah, and no talk about Western sanctions. That's held up a lot of trade and commerce and also the mining of the harbor around Odessa right. and Mariupol. That's been cleared. Now you're starting to see the flow of these things. By the way, uh, Ukrainian Azov battalion, they burned, I don't know how many thousands of tons of corn and uh, other f grains uh, before they were, uh, before they surrendered, before they gave up. So, I mean, the, Ukraine is implicated in uh, holding up food supplies as much as anybody. But do you see anybody 
holding them to account or even wa waving their finger at them. No, you don't. So our media is effectively useless at this point. Uh, well, we're, we're going to hear a little bit more of that type of rhetoric from Boris in a couple of seconds. But before we do, let's just put this on screen. Uh, this is uh, a report from the Bavarian Industry Association, 50 pages. Uh, quick uh, translation there of the, t of the headline, uh, consequences for German industry of an interruption of the supply of Russian gas. Um, so uh, uh, clearly concerned about the, uh, the energy situation in Germany. And I wonder what you think the, the implications are. I mean, you've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks, Patrick, as Germany decimates its own industry. Well, this is what they think uh, of 12.7% fall in economic output. Uh, straight away. So they're saying that uh, uh, in addition to the sectors directly affected by a supply disruption, all other sectors of the German economy also suffer tangible losses uh, in value added indirectly. Consequently, supply disruptions spill over into the economy as a whole. Uh, the upstream and downstream effects are three times higher than the direct effects, accounting for 9.4% of total economic value added. Now, this is the reason why substantial losses would also be recorded in the service sector and in agriculture. Uh, in total, the negative effects of our scenario amount to 12.7% of German economic output. That's quite a report. That is a quite a report. And you have to consider that is we're talking about the uh, economic engine of the European Union. We're talking about the, the country that ballasts the European Central Bank. We're talking about the country that subsidizes uh, Southern Europe that maybe is not performing economically so well. We're talking about a country with per capita has the greatest, one of the greatest trade surpluses, has one of the greatest performing industrial sectors in the world per capita, pound for pound. Germany is an economic powerhouse and they're, they're committing Harry Carey right now. Yep. And you have to question the, what's going on in the heads of Germans we, ha we, we should be looking at the fluoridation of the water supply to see if it's excessively high in western, the western part of the country. What's happened to these people? Have they completely lost their minds? But, you know, Britain's not too upset about this. Uh, they've moved out of the European Union. They're quite happy to see uh, the EU tank and uh, maybe come in with the U.S. to pick up the pieces with some new Marshall Plan in a couple of years. Well, I don't knows? know. Is it, have they who got any, anything like that in the works? Who knows? Well, but anyway, let's uh, let's come on to the, the NATO uh, uh, summit. And of course, I've closed and closed with a family photograph, as they like to call it. Once again, there they all are. They're fully united there, Patrick, as you already mentioned. Uh, they, they absolutely deter determined to make sure everybody wants to know, uh, needs to know that they are united. So they're totally united. Who's that in the uh, second row, left-hand side with the uh, magenta pantsuit? Is that Adam Ant? Who is that? Uh, Looks like a pop star from the 80s or yes, something. Yes, well, indeed. There's some strange outfits. But anyway, yeah. gracias, Madrid. Uh, that's what they're saying. But Boris uh, gave some closing remarks. Uh, and we might hear some parallels with what we've just heard from Joe Biden. So let's have a listen to this. And we must frankly recognize the risk that not every country takes the same view of Putin's invasion or sees it in the way that we do. So we've agreed together to work to explode some myths. We have to explode the myth that Western sanctions are in some way responsible for these price spikes, when of course it is the, the Russian uh, invasion uh, that has caused the uh, shortages of food, and, uh, and it is Putin's bl blockades uh, that are stopping uh, the, the grain leaving uh, Ukrainian ports. We need to, uh, to explode the myth that it was in any way uh, NATO that had responsibility for provoking the conflict. Nothing could be further from the truth. And if you want proof that NATO is a purely defensive alliance, you could have no more eloquent testimony than the accession of Finland and Sweden, quintessentially uh, peace-loving countries that have been neutral for decades. So, Patrick, the comment in the chat box is, I wish he would just stop lying. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean you know, to, to, to state that that the price hikes are a result of U the Ukrainian uh, action by Russia, 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 as, as no, Biden he's saying it. Russians blockades. Well, uh, he's I, saying it has nothing to do with Western sanctions on Russia. Right. That is patently false. False. There's other reasons, too, and other policies taken by uh, himself as well. Green energy uh, policies as well. 
Yes. So, I mean, everything he says is pretty much inverted from, from reality. The interesting part is he, the doublespeak, trying to spin the idea that uh, uh, expanding NATO shows how peaceful NATO is. Yes. That is quite a, a feat of acrobatics there by Boris Johnson. I didn't realize he was so nimble, Mike. Well, there you go. That he could pull off a gymnastics move like that one. Uh, but anyway, to close the conference and, uh, or the, the event, uh, NATO is strengthening its defenses to better protect allied citizens. NATO pushed out this little propaganda piece uh, uh, today or yesterday. Uh, stronger multinational battle, battle groups at brigade level. And here we go. Are you ready? More than 300,000 troops at high level of readiness. We mentioned this on Wednesday. But uh, it didn't, came as a bit of a surprise, that number, to some of the people that, as they were uh, at NATO. They didn't quite understand this 300,000 number before they turned up. That was the big headline, wasn't it? Yes. That, was, that, that made all the headlines. 300,000 rapid reaction force. That, uh, what was it? Sevenfold up from, what, 40,000 to, to 300,000, just over sevenfold. Um, so that, that was the big announcement. And uh, what, where did that come from? Who, who, who well, put Jens, that Jens just uh, announced it himself, Jens he, Stoltenberg. So right before the conference, he announced this big number, this 300,000 number. And something funny happened is after that was announced, all of a sudden, all the officials were saying, hey, wait a minute, nobody talked to us about this from the different countries. They had to speak uh, anonymously to the mainstream press because it was hugely embarrassing. Let's take a look at that. So what about those 300,000 high readiness NATO troops? Concept, not reality, says the Washington Post. This is painful, coming from the paper of record. There's Stoltenberg right there. The vast new mobilization appears to be more fearsome on paper than in reality, more of an aspiration than a dramatic new commitment to defend Europe. This is the Washington Post talking here. Uh, so this is not a fringe newspaper. Senior defense officials say that leaders had not been consulted about the figure ahead of time. Yan just made it up and leaked it to the press, uh, and the officials wondered which of his nation's troops were being counted towards the force, and whether it included personnel from volunteer National Guards that have civilian day jobs, uh, and so forth. And a senior defense official, speaking anonymously, another one, said leaders had not been consulted about the figure ahead of the time, and then also um, asked about the, uh, the mystery of the missing troops. Stoltenberg said the majority will be based inside their home countries, i.e., uh, existing uh, personnel. So the verdict here, this is basically code for simply reclassifying troops that currently exist, making them more available for a, quote, fast deployment. So 300,000 is a theoretical yes. uh, number. But that was the big story. They hung the whole conference on this announcement. But really, it was nothing behind it. So this is, again, public relations. So, so th think about this for a minute. NATO has been training and arming the Ukrainian forces for eight straight years. And they're getting absolutely routed right now in Ukraine. It is a unmitigated disaster for Ukraine and its military. And this is NATO's biggest armament and training project in its history. And it has fallen flat on its face and failed miserably. Now you wouldn't know that if you read the mainstream press. They, the, what you hear is Ukraine has put up a valiant defense. And we're not taking anything away from that. Uh, it may very well be a valiant defense, but it's also a, a massive defeat um, as well on a scale that nobody has seen, not near Europe uh, in a very long time. The types of casualties they're sustaining, the closest thing that we have to this from a Western country is the U.S. casualties in the Vietnam War. Okay, yeah. And they may very well surpass those numbers by the end of the summer. Think about that. It took 10 years for the U.S. to rack up 56,000 dead troops in Southeast Asia, and Ukraine might surpass that in a matter of months. Is that a success? Is that a valiant success? Or is NATO pushing a country that is ill-equipped, ill-prepared, and unable to do, to do battle with a uh, foe like Russia, and they're doing it with the most craven attitude you can absolutely imagine? There's nothing successful going on here except for the arms manufacturers. Uh, and they're silly enough to, to listen to Liz Truss, who says you may not negotiate until the war is won. That ain't going to happen. But anyway, look, let's let's come on to the uh, strategic concept, because this is what uh, this was the big announcement. This is what they're really excited about. Uh, the NATO 2022 strategic concept. Uh, let's just have a look at some of the language in this. And uh, yeah, you'll get an idea very quickly of uh, what's going on. 
Um, so the Euro-Atlantic area is not at peace. The Russian Federation has violated the norms and principles that contributed to a stable and predictable European security order. Uh, we cannot discount the possibility of an attack against Allied sovereignty and territorial integrity. Strategic competition, pervasive instability and recurrent shocks define our broader security environment. Uh, uh, the threats we face are global and are interconnected. Uh, strategic competitors test our resilience and seek to exploit the openness, interconnectedness and digitalization of our nations. They interfere in our democratic processes and institutions and target the security of our citizens through hybrid tactics, both directly and through proxies. They're talking about media and disinformation, right? 100%. People with opinions. They conduct malicious activities in cyberspace and space, promote disinformation campaigns, instrumentalize migration, manipulate energy supplies and employ economic coercion. These actors are also at the forefront of deliberate effort to undermine multilateral norms and institutions and promote authoritarian models of government. I'm going to say, Patrick, everything that we've heard so far is exactly what the United Kingdom, the United States and the European Union have pursued as policy in many parts of the world. And I haven't seen Russia do any of this. Especially manipulating energy supplies. Russia didn't cut off energy supplies. They were sanctioned first, right? Right. So it was the manipulation and the weaponization of energy Europe has done to itself. Anybody with half a brain can actually see that. So where is this rhetoric coming from? What are they hoping to well, achieve? Well, they're, they're clearly insane. But anyway, the Russian Federation, they say, is the most significant and direct threat to ally security and to peace and stability in the Euro-Atlantic area. It seeks to establish spheres of influence and direct control through coercion, subversion, aggression and annexation. It uses conventional cyber and hybrid means against us and our partners. Uh, NATO does not seek confrontation and poses no threat to the Russian Federation. That's why it's been arming and training and, and militarizing Ukraine and for the last uh, into, eight years. Into Sweden and Finland and expanding in, in its influence into Georgia and, and other places. And we will continue to respond, they say, to Russia's threats uh, and hostile actions in a united and responsible way. There's that united word again. Uh, we will significantly strengthen deterrence and defense for all allies, enhance our resilience against Russian coercion, and support our partners to counter malign influence and aggression. In light of its hostile policies and actions, we cannot consider the Re Russian Federation to be our partner. That's a, that's a significant shift because uh, up until that, it, the idea of being Russia as being a partner has still been at least in the rhetoric, uh, even, even though in practice it wasn't the case. Uh, so, however, we remain willing to open channels of communications with Mos Moscow. We seek stability and predictability in the Euro-Atlantic area and between NATO and the Russian Federation. Any change in our relationship depends on the Russian Federation halting its aggressive behavior and fully complying with international law. So preconditions on any negotiations is absolutely clearly part of this. So, so they're laying down the gauntlet on international law. It, yes. International law doesn't apply to Western countries. So this is a clear double standard. This is just liberal internationalist uh, uh, hollow talk. Yes. This is the sort of stuff you hear in Obama's speeches or when these people are up at the UN. International law never applied to the United States or Britain with any of its uh, latest uh, escapades over the last 20 years. Right. Uh, and I can name them all. Um, international law does not apply to the US, Britain, or its allies, full stop. And all of a sudden, now it's all about international law. Now they're virtue signaling about international law. I want to point people to the uh, realist international relations scholar, John Mearsheimer, who has released mm. a lot of good lectures, even in the last couple of weeks, and explains this perfectly. And uh, also debunks the whole canard that Putin has imperial ambitions, mm. uh, and he wants to reconstitute uh, the glory of the Soviet Union. There is no evidence uh, for this at all. Um, but what that is, that is the latter-day domino effect theory. Remember during the Cold War, it was the communist domino effect mm. that basically drove all of the wars and proxy wars, the Vietnam War and everything else, policy, defense policy during, during the Cold War. The, the Putin's imperial ambitions is the latter-day version, the Western manifestation of the domino uh, theory of communism. And it's used to, to undergird all of their foreign policy. And we're seeing it in all of the speeches and in this document. Right, so let's keep going. The People's Republic of China, because they can't be left out of this, has, has stated ambitions and coercive policies challenge our interests, security and, and values. So uh, they are also co coercive in, in their activities, PRC. 
seeks, seeks to control key technological industrial sectors, uh, critical infrastructure and strategic materials and supply chains. It uses its economic leverage to create strategic dependencies and enhance its influence. It strives to subvert the rules-based international order, including in space, cyber and maritime domains. This is such a pile of nonsense. It uses its economic leverage to create st strategic dependencies. The West created the strategic dependencies on China by exporting its, product its production to China and its intellectual property to China. And so they're turning around and saying that, oh, that's, that's, that's a manipulation by China. Yes. By, by selling us all these goods. They're doing the same thing with Russia and energy. Those Russians are manipulating us. They've got us dependent on Russian gas all these years. Yeah. And, all, and we shut down our nuclear plants because yes. uh, the Greens told us to in Germany. And now they're manipulating us by invading Ukraine. I mean, none of this stands up to even the most basic modicum of logic it's, it's and yet they're pushing this through official documents it's embarrassing but at the end of the day it's tragic because these people are writing policy uh, indeed so let's go the deepening strategic partnership between the people's republic of china and the russian federation and their mutually reinforcing attempts to undercut the rules-based international order run counter to our values and, and interests Yes. Okay. Uh, we remain open to constructive engagement with the PRC, including building reciprocal transparency with a view to safeguarding the alliance's security interests. We will boost our shared awareness, enhance our resilience and preparedness, and protect against the PRC's coercive tactics and efforts to divide the alliance. We will stand up for our shared values and rules-based international order, including freedom of navigation. It, it is just the same rhetoric, repeated ad nauseum right the way through the document. It's, it absolutely reminds me of, you know, uh, he doth protest too much. They, they are trying to uh, establish a, a, a position that they know is really untenable. Uh, and so they just keep repeating the lie in the hope that it'll stick. And they, they use international law and rules-based international order together, but those things are, uh, actually contradict each other. The rules-based international order is the West uh, or the, the, the international community, which is the G7 countries, not the rest of the world. They make the rules up as they go along, and if you violate them or you don't do what they say, or you, you know, then you're in violation of the rules-based international order. That's not international law. China is not in violation of any international laws. Whatever you think about the Chinese government and the Chinese uh, burgeoning empire, they're, they're playing by the international law book. And Russia is, to a large part, as well. This situation in Ukraine, uh, obviously, when you have two tribes go to war, over something as sensitive as this, ethnic issues as well, ethnic cleansing, civil wars, then all of a sudden international law no longer becomes as relevant. Okay, so I don't even want to talk about Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and the list goes on. Goes on and yeah. Yugoslavia as well. Where was the international law there? Where was the UN uh, Security Council resolution there? Mm. Nowhere to be seen. So the question is, if, uh, if this is all just rhetoric, uh, and if they don't have the troops to meet the 300,000 uh, number uh, and uh, it's posturing, then what's going on in the background? Because there must be something going on. Uh, and so perhaps this gives us one clue. I'll come on to another one in a second, but perhaps this gives us one clue. Well, I don't like NATO's chances when I see uh, headlines like this, Mike. NATO chief Stoltenberg, what he's concerned about here, he wants climate-friendly militaries. He wants Tesla tanks. He wants tanks that you stop and charge up and plug in. He wants wind-powered uh, uh, military bases, I guess, stuff like that. More sustainable, recycled uniforms, organic hemp-based uh, material and stuff like that. So very green, very climate-friendly. And so NATO is going to defeat Russia by being a more climate-friendly uh, military. That's what they're concerned about. These people are not existing in the real, real world. world. Okay, not. well, let's just remind everybody of an article on the UK column website, the Not So Great Carbon Reset, part two, and part one also, but uh, Ian Davis here was talking about COP26 and making the point that while there was all the nonsense going on over climate change at COP26, in fact, what was going on was that Mark Carney was busy launching uh, the uh, Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS. Uh, so actually what was behind this was a, a big financial shell game. Uh, well, it's exactly the same with uh, with with NATO here. So, uh, so let's uh, just put this uh, image on screen. Um, and uh, why we do, we'll we'll mention that uh, they hosted a signing ce ceremony. Uh, they're all gathered round the table there, 
to sign uh, the the uh, document. So uh, here we go. Uh, you'll see Boris in a second with his pen out uh, and the uh, the piece of paper taken to everybody around the table uh, to sign the same uh, because this was the signing ceremony for uh, the world's first multi-sovereign venture capital fund. Oh, right. So uh, this fund is unique. Ian Stoltenberg said with a 15 year time frame, the NATO Innovation Fund will help bring to life those nascent technologies that have the power to transform our security in the decades to come, strengthening the alliance's innovation ecosystem and bolstering the uh, security of our one billion citizens. Uh, so this is uh, the implementation part of what we've just seen in that RT article, uh, all about developing the new green war-making technologies. Uh, green war-making technologies. Yes. So a green IG Farben here taking care of NATO's future industrial needs, right? Isn't this what it is? The privatization of NATO? Yes. They got kind of a, yeah, a green IG Farben. Who knows? Greta Thunberg could be on their board of directors <laughs> one year and the uh, head of Greenpeace and so forth, I think, and some inclusion and diversity uh, as well. We'll be looking out for that. Yes. So then the, the question of uh, Sweden and Finland, let's uh, hear what Ursula von der Leyen had to say. The accession of Finland and Sweden makes NATO larger, more European and stronger. Uh, Putin tried to divide us, but what he finally got is an even stronger alignment between the European Union and NATO, and therefore it is a good day for the transatlantic alliance, for the European Union and for Finland and Sweden. Okay, so she was hugely excited about the Finland and Sweden thing. She, of was, course. she was looking a bit rough, by the way. Normally the helmet is pristine, but it was just, she was all over the place. Well, uh, that's a sign of the unity that was going on uh, over the last couple of days. But anyway, uh, of course, the, the big spanner in the works with respect to uh, Sweden and Finland was Turkey. Um, and uh, well, they seem to have got over that. And between Sweden and Turkey and uh, Sweden, Finland and Turkey, they've released what they're calling a trilateral memorandum. Here it is today, the representatives of Turkey, you'll note the new spelling, by the way, uh, Finland and Sweden, uh, under the auspices of the NATO Secretary General have agreed the following. Uh, well, here's the key points, Patrick, because of course, as you pointed out, uh, there is a problem between Turkey and Sweden uh, and for a particular reason. So uh, as pers uh, prospective NATO allies, Finland and Sweden extend their full support to Turkey against threats to its national security, says the memorandum. To that effect, Finland and Sweden will not provide support to YPG slash PYD uh, and the organization described as FETO uh, in Turkey. Turkey also extends its full support to Finland and Sweden against threats to their national security. Finland and Sweden reject and condemn terrorism in all its forms and manifestations. In the strongest terms, Finland and Sweden unambiguously condemn all terrorist organizations perpetrating tax, attacks against Turkey and express uh, their deepest solidarity with Turkey and the families and victims of the victims. And it goes on to say that Finland and Sweden will address Turkey's pending deportation or extradition requests of terror suspects expeditiously and thoroughly, taking into account information, evidence and intelligence provided by Turkey and establish necessary bilateral legal frameworks to facilitate extradition and security cooperation with Turkey in accordance with the European Convention on Extradition. Uh, and then Finland and Sweden will investigate and interdict any financing and recruitment activities by, of the PKK and other terrorist organizations, uh, as well as affiliates or inspired groups or networks, as outlined in paragraph five. So this is all about the Kurds. So what what is the background to this and why? what's the issue with extradition? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't know why, for whatever reason, these Scandinavian countries have uh, acted as safe havens. Uh, for these disparate uh, groups, especially Turkish groups. I personally think this was early, the uh, the, the formation of the, the Syria project or destroying Syria. This is a long time in the making. Right. And perhaps Western intelligence agencies have managed those enclaves within Sweden and within Finland. It's the only thing I can think of. But uh, they always have this sort of public-facing pro-immigration stance, especially with people from Syria, a lot of Syrian refugees coming to Sweden with open arms and Finland and other uh, uh, Scandinavian countries as well, Norway, the Oslo Freedom Forum, all of these ideas and these sort of movements, opposition movements, fifth column opposition movements in Europe are hatched in these Scandinavian countries. So maybe right. they're done or they, they're going to have to wrap that up. Otherwise, they won't be able to get Turkey's vote for so, NATO. So that is the question. Is it a done deal? We've got the announcement uh, and we've got the declaration there, but is it a done deal? Well, let's put uh, this on Sweden, Finland, 
commit uh, to back Turkey's anti-terror fight as a headline. And what it says is, Turkey, quotes got what it wanted, uh, end quote, from Sweden and Finland before agreeing to back their aim to join the NATO Defence Alliance, according to Erdogan's office. But the question is, did they? Uh, because uh, the article then goes on to say, and this is uh, Justice Minister, the Justice Minister talking here, uh, this mem memorandum of understanding does not mean that the admission process to NATO is complete. There are certain uh. procedures ahead, ahead. Turkey will continue to follow the implementation of the agreement. Mm. So there, it's, it's absolutely clear that, uh, okay, they have signed this piece of paper, but Turkey is going to hold them to it, uh, it seems. They say they want to see action, not just words. Yes. So that's so. this isn't over yet. So. No, but of course, the little bribes, uh, well, perhaps. Well, I was thinking, what was behind this? How did they twist Turkey's arm? That was the big question. When I saw that announced last week, I thought, what happened? Mm. What did they bribe Erdogan with? What, what's Turkey been promised? And lo and behold, we saw this story here. This just drifted out uh, this week here. Biden supports F-16 sale to Turkey. They must have been excited with the Tom Cruise Maverick movie featuring the F-16s. They're confident they're going to get uh, congressional approval for this. So Turkey's going to get a couple dozen, couple of dozen F-16s to build out their fleet. The F-35s are a bit complicated. They don't yeah, actually yeah, yeah. fly. But uh, so maybe that's not such a good way forward. So is this what it is? Because what does Turkey need? They need arms. Yes. They need weapons. They need to build out parts of their military. And if people aren't going to sell it to them because they've bought S-400 missile systems from Russia, that's a problem. Turkey's going to use this situation to re-leverage. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, but uh, we have Biden there. Yeah, well, we, he is a bit slow coming out. Sorry we didn't show him earlier. But there's Biden, the aviators uh, there. <laughs> Does Biden know any of this, what's going on here? He says he supports it. We don't know, but that's just by and the by. We thought we'd show him anyway. He's still president for now. Yes. Well, look, uh, good news. Uh, Jacinda Ardern is in Downing Street today. Uh, now, she didn't say uh, that, of course, but I'm sure she would have if she'd been asked. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, Boris Johnson will host the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, today. Uh, and this is rounds off nine days of international engagement in with more than 90 nations, is what the press release from Tan Downing Street said. Uh, so the leaders are expected to discuss the security challenges facing the Indo-Pacific uh, and the situation in Ukraine. Uh, and it comes, uh, this visit comes as both leaders attended the NATO conference in Madrid. Now, the, Jacinda said the right things as far as some people were concerned at the NATO conference, but not as far as the Chinese were concerned. They were not entirely excited about her unhelpful comments at the NATO uh, uh, conference. So uh, what did they say here that uh, uh, she told NATO leaders that China had become more assertive and more willing to challenge international rules and norms. So she was on exactly the same rhetoric as everybody else, uh, but the Chinese didn't like it too much. Uh, and they didn't like the fact that she was there, even because, of course, New Zealand is not part of NATO at this time. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, but as we know, NATO 2030 uh, is all about expansion towards the uh, uh, South China Sea and the Indo-Pacific region. And uh, add Australia into that so, equation as well. Uh, well, I mean, I think that uh, Australia's uh, recent deal with Britain and the United States uh, defense agreement is uh, perhaps a precursor to some kind of uh, move in, in that direction. More largely, uh, Australia has, has an anti-China uh, faction within its government, certainly on the conservative side, the Liberal Party, more hawkish against China. Jacinda Ardern was very friendly with China. Uh, for years. So they've managed to turn, they need to turn her around. Um, it, it, Australia is completely occupied and controlled by the United States um, in terms of politics and intelligence. It has been for a very, very long time, but they need to bring New Zealand uh, into that anti-China fold as well to build NATO out, AUKUS, the AUKUS agreement from last year, etc. All of these things add up um, to this new stance. Global NATO, NATO has declared war on the world. Yes. Just when we thought they were irrelevant, Trump said we need to defund NATO. All of a sudden, NATO is now like an octopus it's, it's just putting, putting its tentacles around the planet. Amazing. Well, look, let's uh, come back to Boris because Boris was speaking uh, to U.S. Uh, uh, television uh, recently. And, well, he had a view about, uh, about whether this whole Ukraine situation would have arisen under certain circumstances. And the, the woke Boris is emerging once again. And it's so encouraging. Let's listen to what the new Boris, the new man has to say. Need more women in positions of power. If Putin was a woman, 
which I, he obviously isn't, but uh, if he were, I really don't think he would have embarked on a crazy, macho war of, of invasion uh, and violence in the way that he has. If you want a perfect example of toxic masculinity, it's, it would, it's what he's doing in, in Ukraine. So, so there we go. I mean, you know, we should be, we could not be more proud of our leader there. Really? Right. Okay. So, so just, just that's workforce, but this just, just to make sure that everybody understands, this isn't a recent development. Let's uh, go back to a year to the G7 at Carvis Bay and and what he was saying there. They want us to be sure that we're beating the pandemic together, and discussing how we'll never have a repeat of what we've seen, but also that we're building back better together and and building back greener and building back fairer and building back more equal and uh, how shall I, more, in, in, in a more gender neutral and perhaps like a more feminine way. How about that, apart from anything else? So uh, those are some of the objectives that we have before us at, at Carbis Bay. So with all that in mind, Patrick, you must assume that there must have been lots of, of women at the NATO conference. How about that? How about that? No, look, but, but just, just put this to rest. Anybody who thinks that Boris Johnson is a, is a conservative by now, you should, the penny should have dropped a long time ago. There is nothing conservative. He is an absolute political chameleon and a totally shameless opportunist. Yes. And to, to, to have him as the head of the conservative party making all of these woke gender neutral statements and identity politics obsessed and all this stuff. I mean, it's kind of beyond a joke at this point. So let's just have a quick look at how many women there were at the uh, NATO conference because they were all there. There's uh, the wonderful Liz and, uh, well, we've already mentioned that Jacinda was there as well, but, uh, well, I don't really know what to say. They're a handful. Looks like the wags, but it's not wags. No, they're not. No, no, These they're not. These are actual leaders, but they're carrying on like it's a sorority party, Mike. Yes. And the nice the, handbag there. Yeah. Louis, Louis so Vuitton. anyway, the, the point is, uh, he, he may be, again, just like NATO was sort of uh, suggesting that it's able to do things that isn't. Uh, it, Boris is... Boris, Boris should be in with that group. Well, there's, indeed. There's less toxic masculinity there. Yeah. Not that there's much toxic masculinity between Justin Trudeau, Olaf Scholz, uh, Joe Biden's. Joe Biden's probably the most masculine of them all. Boris too. He's pretty masculine. Is he? You talk about well, okay. toxic, well, you talk about toxic masculinity. Yeah. Well, let's anyway. uh, put some more toxic masculinity on. Well, this is Ben Wallace, uh, who, of course, is our Secretary of State for War. Uh, and, of course, at the Brucey conferences we were talking about on Wednesday, uh, he was talking about Russia, China, uh, but he dropped in Iran as well. So it should come as no surprise then uh, that in the Security Council, Barbara Woodward, the UK's ambassador to the United Nations, got on this uh, Iranian issue uh, very firmly. Iran's nuclear program has never been more advanced than it is today, and Iran's nuclear escalation is a threat to international peace and security. Same old rhetoric. Uh, at the current enrichment rate, by the end of this year, Iran is likely to have uh, enough enriched material to rapidly produce several nuclear devices. If we just say yellow cake at this point, then perhaps, uh, and uh, go on. Uh, Iran's nuclear escalation is undermining international peace and security and the global non-proliferation system and is a clear violation of resolution uh, two, two, three, one. Um, so then in parallel with that, the, uh, there was a joint statement issued from the UK, France and Germany. This is the so-called E3. Uh, and this was uh, ahead of this security uh, council meeting on the implementation of uh, resolution 2231. Uh, and again, they're using the same old language. Uh, Iran has been taking on precedented steps, they said, to accelerate the pace, pace of its nuclear program in the past three years and continues to escalate unabatedly uh, we call upon Iran, bloody, bloody, blah. So it, it's the same old thing. But the point is, uh, in the Rusi speech, uh, Ben Wallace absolutely saying, you know, Russia is a threat, China is a threat, Iran is a threat. Uh, are we going to go to war with Iran soon because Israel says so? Uh, well, they're, they're clearly packaging Iran in with this new axis of evil. And I might say to Ambassador Woodward, the British ambassador uh, to the UN for this month, I guess, uh, Iran's nuclear escalation. What are they talking about? A nuclear weapons program? No, there is no nuclear weapons program in Iran. Who withdrew from the JCPOA nuclear agreement? It was the United States who withdrew unilaterally mm -hmm. with no protest from Britain at all. There were some people that raised objections and they were beaten down uh, pretty early on in that process. And Europe never uh, fulfilled its obligations 
for the JCPOA agreement. So I, Iran had no choice but to withdraw from that agreement. And now they're throwing their hands up, screaming that oh, nuclear escalation, it's just like Putin's weaponizing energy or China's manipulating us with trade or whatever. Isn't this the same old gag they play with everyone? Uh, do we say Minsk at this point? The Minsk agreement. Well, Liz Truss brought up the Minsk agreement. Yeah, well, you, yes. you commented on yes, that, didn't you, on yes, Wednesday, Wednesday yeah. saying, well, the failure of the Minsk Accords and what Russia did to fail at the Minsk. No, Russia didn't fail at the Minsk Accords. It was Europe and Kiev that didn't even bother to implement them. That's why we're in the war that we're in right now in Ukraine. I mean, it's not rocket science, but we have to kind of explain this every week, don't we? Well, we do because we don't have a mainstream press that's willing to engage on these uh, topics. But anyway, okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UKCOM does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcom.org uh, and uh, your support would be very welcome indeed. Or you could pick something up at the UKCOM shop. Uh, but in any case, do uh, please share any material you find on the various platforms. Uh, so let's move on to health issues, Patrick, and, uh, well, monkeypox. Well, monkeypox, of course, has been in the news. There's still a lot of fear-mongering going on about monkeypox. I want to point people to this excellent piece here uh, up at 21st Century Wire by uh, Louis Small, the monkey uh, in the room. And let's take a look at what this article delves into. This is really an investigation into the curious correlation, Mike, between mass vaccination programs and outbreaks of diseases in the last hundred years. So are vaccine injuries being disguised with fancy new names? Kind of a rhetorical question there. So from 1955 to 1963, an estimated 10 to 30% of polio vaccines administered in the US were said to be contaminated with simian virus 40 or SV40. The virus is said to have come from monkey kidney cell cultures used to make polio vaccines and was later found to cause cancer. This is just one of the explosive uh, findings in this article, in this report. And so that's an interesting question. Uh, what, what is simian virus 40? Well, it says right there, uh, and this is in their documents, it's from a monkey cell culture with all sorts of other chemicals in it, uh, including flor formaldehyde and things that you don't want to have injected mm -hmm. uh, into your body, especially if you're a child. So, so where are we getting this from? Well, we're actually getting this from the NIH here in the United States, polio vaccines, simian virus 40, and human cancer. Epidemiological evidence for causal association. That's just one of the documents presented here. There's actually three supporting papers for that particular claim. So this is an excellent resource. It's a great job uh, in terms of research and medical investigation. I encourage people to go look at that. But what is this really? This is all about... Uh, under a, a larger banner of biosurveillance or of global public health, also known as One Health. And take a look at this. This is the sequel to the article that we showed a few weeks ago uh, by Freddie Ponton, One Health, the Trojan Horse to Make Climate Change a Global Health Emergency. This is step two of the One Health agenda. What is he talking about? Merging climate change, zoonosis, and pandemics this environmental narrative is crucial. It's a crucial anchor for the globalists in gaining the adoption for their One Health command and control agenda. Do you see any potential problems with merging climate change with pandemics or airborne disease or uh, insect vector-based diseases? You see where this is heading. Mm. This is how they're, this is the framework, and they're using big data. They're using big data, epidemiological data data for all sorts of different sources, pouring it into this new framework, which is called the One Health Approach, and what comes out the other end? Mm. Policy. Policy comes out the other end. What type of policy? Mitigation policy. Emergency mitigation policy. So you, you don't even need an actual pandemic. You just need the threat of a pandemic. And big data and this huge framework that they're building through all of the institutions, including the WHO, this is first and foremost in their agenda, mm. and all of the other uh, governmental uh, public health bodies are all working and vibing off this same language now. It's a slow process. They began it in 2005, but COVID-19 really kind of turbocharged mm. the, uh, th this, this new language. Very similar to UN Sustainable Development language that was implemented from the Rio Summit forward. That's how long it takes to become institutionalized. It's not just language, Mike. 
these, this is translating itself into policy. Right. So climate change is now a health issue. Get ready for it. So the, the original article here, which I'll also point to people, that's the sort of the first introduction to One Health, a globalist path to a one world order. Um, I, I think everybody should try to read this and understand what's in it. It's absolutely mind-blowing, some of the stuff in here, and it contains all of their documents, including PDFs. So if you want a good research uh, resource, this is a very good one. Oh, okay, well, of course, part and parcel of this, uh, we are in a, a time of transition. We're in a time of transition in many ways, uh, from a defense point of view, from a financial point of view, from a, a, a health point of view. Uh, and uh, the NHS is in a period of transition as well. Um, so let's uh, bring a couple of ex latest examples of that on screen. Uh, first of all, we have uh, FitNotes. Uh, of course, these, this is what happens whenever you uh, uh, have to demonstrate your uh, fitness to, to work. Uh, you go to your GP. Traditionally, you went to your GP for a FitNote. You might get a sick note if you want time off for work, but when you want to come back, you need to get a FitNote. Well, it, Turns out that uh, doctors will no longer be the only people that can issue these. They're the only people, no longer the only people that are qualified to decide whether you're fit for work uh, now because nurses, occupational therapists, pharmacists, and physiotherapists can now uh, legally certify fit notes. Excellent. Uh, that means you don't need to go to your GP anymore. Uh, and indeed, on top of that, you don't need to go to your GP if you want to uh, get a blood pressure check uh, because you just need to go to your local betting shop uh, and they'll be there to... Uh, to, to sort you out, no fantastic. problem. That's fantastic at, at stuff. William Hill. So is, does that include being not fit for work? Will they certify that as well as being fit for work? Uh, at the minute, it's only for fit notes. Uh, just fit notes, so, not so unfit we'll, notes. We'll see, well, that's correct. So we'll oh, see where it goes. Um, so, but but this, this uh, mail article here, blood pressure checks and bedding shops uh, as part of the NHS uh, shakeup, if we can put that back on screen for a second. Uh, this is all about transformation, as it says in the headline there. Uh, and what are they saying? Aside from blood pressure checks in betting shops, uh, mental health staff will also be placed uh, in GP surgeries. Well, if you can get into one. Uh, but uh, this is all part of what is being called the Integrated Care Systems, uh, ICS. And this is hoped that it's going to slash unnecessary levels of bureaucracy within the health service. It's going to slash the uh, the pressure on the uh, on A&E departments in uh, hospitals. This is fantastic. This is outside the box thinking, Mike. It, this is joined up thinking. It certainly so is. So inspirational. It is inspirational. And England will be split into 42 systems uh, created to bring together GP teams, hospitals, local authorities, and other partners under one roof. Uh, and they've taken over the responsibility of 300 plus uh, hospital trusts, clinical commissioning groups, and care systems, integrated care systems. I don't see how it could possibly go wrong. Wow. So, so you can't get to see your GP unless you get a COVID vaccine. They'll see you if you come in for a vaccine, right? But so you have to go to your betting shop now to get a checkup. Is that that's basically this is this is the direction that it's going. You'll be you'll be treated at home. You'll be sent home for, out of the hospital to be treated at home if you've got a problem with all the sensors going with you. Uh, if you want your uh, blood pressure taken, don't go to the GP. Go to the betting shop and so on. Everything is about taking. Uh, so-called care out of the traditional care setting and making it a commercial operation. Can you get vaccinated at the betting shop? It's coming. It is coming, yes. It's coming. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to uh, COVID-related stuff, but economic stuff. Uh, this is uh, Claire Lombardelli, who is the Chief Economic Advisor to the Treasury, and she was giving a speech uh, in the last day or two talking about the impact of COVID policy uh, on the economy. Uh, and she said at the end, uh, to conclude, let me take you back to where I started and remind you of the three numbers they speak for themselves. And what's she talking about? Uh, she's saying that she was talking about the greatest fall in annual GDP in over 100 years. She was talking about the greatest increase in government borrowing in over 50 years and the risk of exceptionally high unemployment. Uh, but, the, but of course, that risk didn't uh, crystallize. And why didn't it crystallize? Well, of course, it didn't crystallize because of the levels of government borrowing and their the government just throwing money around uh, as if uh, there was no tomorrow. Uh, but uh, she, the main focus of this, or that was certainly grabbed by uh, the mainstream press, was this. Uh, she said, the fall in labor availability limits the potential size of economy and increases the pressure on inflation. Now, earlier on, we heard from both Biden and uh, from Boris that the inflation problem was being caused by Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah. But in fact, what she was saying, just put her back on there if we could for a second, what she was saying was that uh, 
In fact, it's the uh, fact that labor, so people have been leaving the labor market in increasing numbers, and particularly people over the age of 50 and 60 uh, who have been taking early retirement. Um, and so uh, one of the, the, the footnotes for this speech, because they provided lots of footnotes for it, uh, says that the UK is one of the few countries where inactivity, that's economic inactivity, amongst older age groups is still higher than it was uh, in pre-pandemic uh, times. So, uh, so there you go. Uh, I think the problem is that Boris hasn't been speaking to the Treasury, and that's why he's confused about where the inflation's coming from. She's been absolutely clear that one of the, main, one of the major drivers has been the uh, lack of availability of uh, people in the workforce because they've decided for themselves that they don't want to be part of it anymore. And she didn't even talk about the, uh, the, the quadrupling of energy prices, right? That, was, that wasn't yet even covered. No. So it, it's, not a good, it's not a good scene. Um, and, and again, hyperinflation, oh, she's right, all of these things uh, drive up inflation, uh, paying people to stay home and not work and things like that, paying businesses to shut down. Yes. Um, all that coming out of quantitative easing, magic money tree. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. But let's come back on the climate change. And uh, the United States is quite a big move. This is huge. So the Supreme Court made a decision today. And I'm going to tell you, this Klaus Schwab is not happy about this. So that means our listeners and viewers might be happy about this. Um, so the Supreme Court has uh, ruled to limit the Environmental Protection Agency's power to combat climate change, says the Washington Post. Technically, that's not 100% true, but that's the headline. The decision, they say, risks putting the U.S. further off track of President Biden's goal of uh, a clean uh, CO2-free clean energy grid by 2035. I don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, West Virginia versus the EPA, it's a landmark ruling. It limits the EPA's power to regulate emissions from fossil fuels. We're talking about power plants, coal plants, but, but right across the board for far-reaching impacts for the green agenda. So this is going to impact the green agenda. So what they're saying here, what the Supreme Court's saying, is only Congress can have such powers. So statutory uh, uh, rules by agencies is not enough. Only Congress can have such powers with express authorization by law, in this case, under the Clean Air Act. So this is a move, uh, again, away from technocracy and towards actual democracy. Very similar uh, in some ways to the Roe versus Wade uh, uh, decision. They overturned Roe versus Wade recently, and it's pushed the abortion issue back to the states. So it's more of devolution towards democratic processes rather than uh, the, uh, the, the statutory route, which is just li literally, I'm in power, we're going to make policy, and it's going to be right across the board, and you can't do anything about it. Right. So this, this is uh, really incredible. So they're going crazy. You can see how uh, impactful this is. Look at The Guardian here. You look at these completely unhinged headlines. Condemning everyone alive, shouts The Guardian. Outrage at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, climate ruling here is what they're saying. Trouble for Joe Biden's climate targets, which include cleaning up electric power, the electric power grid in order to meet a national goal of 100% carbon pollution, free electricity by 2035, really, and net zero by 2050. So this is all going out the window and fast. And they're all going crazy about this because the Greens just thought it works well on paper, so it's going to become reality. Now reality is coming in into, the, into this uh, equation. And people, they're all they're all shocked mm. uh, on the green side. So let's look at uh, the, one of the most progressive uh, congressmen here, Ro Khanna from California, and he's basically saying he's attacking the Supreme Court. Six right-wing extremists on the Supreme Court of the United States have dismantled the EPA's ability to fight climate change. What exactly does that mean? They're not very specific, but anyway, we hear it a lot by taking away their ability to devise emission caps based on the Clean Air Act. So this is a crisis of legitimacy of the court, he says. Time to put everything on the table. Term limits for justices now. So this is the typical radical left's reaction when they have a decision in the judiciary that they don't like, mm. which is to destroy the institution. That's We've seen this time and time again. There's with the Electoral College. If they don't like the election result, kill the Electoral College. If they don't like states uh, election uh, regulating elections like mail-in ballots or uh, dro anonymous drop boxes. They're saying we need to federalize elections. 
get rid of the state institutions. Now they don't like the Supreme Court decisions. Let's get rid of the Supreme Court justices. And so, I mean, the reason there's no term limits is very similar to the House of Lords, uh, the, the idea behind the House of Lords initially for that chamber of government in Britain is that there's certain people, if it's a lifetime appointment, it, it frees them up from any sort of campaigning or political bias and so forth. They can kind of just kind of get set and stick with the principles of the law rather than be influenced too much by politics, right? right? Or people who are wealthy enough that they weren't going to be swayed uh, by incentives or things like that. So this is the same principle behind the lifetime appointment of uh, judiciaries in the Supreme Court. So um, they want to get rid of that just yep. because of this. So uh, it's very interesting. So this the battle is absolutely on and the Democrats are still in power. Incredible. Right. Okay. Well, we're, we're just about out of time, Patrick. So what, just one minute on this. We'll cover this uh, undoubtedly more on Monday. But uh, the news of uh, uh, Glenn Maxwell ending up uh, in prison. Yeah, Glenn Maxwell. So yeah, a lot of people didn't know. Yeah, there was a trial on. It wasn't allowed to be televised. Mm. Not like Johnny Depp's trial. Uh, but uh, 20 years for, quote, horrific sex trafficking. So this is the first sex trafficking case in history where nobody knows who the uh, person convicted was trafficking sex to. Nobody knows because the black books are, are uh, still closed. Are still closed. And, uh, and a lot of the flight logs, some of the flight logs are known, some aren't. Mm. Um, so that part of it, we, we may never know. There's a picture of... Uh, a uh, young uh, Randy Andy there, Virginia Roberts, and uh, in the background, apparently the mastermind of it all, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, whose father was the uh, media tycoon, Robert Maxwell, uh, super spy for Israeli Mossad. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot more going on behind this story yes. than a lot of people would care to admit. So it's been conveniently put here and it's gonna be on her shoulders now. She's, they said she was on suicide watch they put her on suicide watch a couple of days ago. I didn't hear anything much after that. Well, and and indeed there've been there's been quite a bit of talk of uh, of the threat that she faces in prison because uh, because people that are in these kinds of activities aren't uh, well liked in prisons. Yeah. Uh, so we will just see. I, I think uh, she'll what be happens. put in a in a special a special uh, yes. a country what they call a country club uh, facility in America. So she's not. Um, yeah, she's not going to sort of dig her way out like Clint Eastwood and Alcatraz. Right. She'll be fine with the apartment and the tennis courts and whatnot. But so, but 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 we need to really get uh, to find out who's in the black books is really what needs to happen at this point. Well, it's what needs to happen, but is it ever going to happen? That's the question. So it goes right up to the top of uh, Washington. Yes, you've got presidents, you've got uh, yes. heads of state, and people like this. I'm, in, uh, I'm not sure. Indeed. Right. Well, look, we've got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back in a few minutes on the uh, main live stream for, uh, for some extra. But otherwise, I uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday.